The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I was thinking as I was preparing with this chapter, chapter 15 of Genesis, and ask you to turn there and follow with me today, that this chapter is somewhat like I can imagine a person cleaning out an attic of a grandparent or a parent's house and coming across things that brought memories of the family, old albums or memorabilia, and you would come upon these things as a discovery and say, look at this. This tells me about my family heritage. I believe Genesis 15 is a chapter that is a very key part. I don't just believe it. It is a very key part of our heritage of faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a a linkage chapter between the Old Testament and the New. So it has some very important things to offer today. Listen as I read Genesis chapter 15. Hear God's Word. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. The Lord took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram. Bring each three years old and bring along a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for four hundred years." But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, 
and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure that I'm not the only person here who's ever had a dream that was so vivid that when I awoke and you awoke the next day, the dream lingered on. And you puzzled over it. You, maybe you sort of worried about it. It was a dream that had vivid events or vivid characters, maybe some fear in it. And yet it didn't completely make sense either. Dr. Light told me last week of a recent dream in which he heard that he was going to receive a huge tax refund of exactly $50,000. This is true. He admits that this was more about wishful thinking than about reality. However, if you really are in need of a loan, you might want to go see John, see what he can do for you. Many of our dreams aren't very rational, and when we think about them, we would dismiss the idea that God would ever speak through them or or be revealing anything meaningful to us in a dream. And yet, dreams and visions were one medium that God used of revelation, not never the exclusive medium, but they were one way in which in the days when the Scriptures were still being written, he revealed himself to people numerous different times. Think of the dreams to Joseph at the time of the birth of Jesus that guided that man and and kept him from doing things that would have been disastrous. The Spirit sometimes spoke by dreams. But now we think that as the Scripture has been formulated and the books of Scripture are complete, we don't look for dreams to reveal the same things with that level of authority any longer. Now, Genesis 15 is a book with a vivid dream in it, and we'll get to that this morning. But it is also a premier chapter of the entire Old Testament. Let's just take a second and rehearse where Abram is. He has obeyed God in the matter of going to a strange country. He's been tested in terms of his obedience. He followed, but then he stumbled rather badly when he went down into Egypt and trusted in his own cleverness and devices and got in a lot of trouble. Last time, we saw him in a rather sterling act of faith, leading a military raid against a powerful invader and scattering that army and bringing back the all the plunder and his nephew Lot and family included and paying a wonderful tithe to God through the priest of God, Melchizedek. Well, now today we don't so much have new events or developments in Abram's history. In fact, I would have you look correctly, I think, upon chapter 15 as more of an interior chapter. What's going on inside the man than actions of you know, great drama and events in history? What's he thinking? What's he feeling? What's he praying? Remember, he's getting older. God has said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to occupy, your descendants are going to occupy this land as far as your eye can see. And yet it isn't happening yet. 
And Abram's starting to need reaffirmation and need clarity. How, God? How's this going to happen? One of the reasons we know this is such an important chapter is the way the New Testament treats it. There's a key phrase, of course, in verse 6 that you may know that the Apostle Paul picks up on both in Romans and in Galatians. James picks up on it and looks back to the faith of Abram, fastens on it like a laser beam and says, here is faith that people need for time immemorial. This is the faith that God honors. The phrase that is here is a hinge phrase, justified by faith alone. Abram believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. Aren't there times in all of our experience when we say, I'm trying to trust God. I'm working at it. It's hard. Time's going on. I thought God was going to do some things that I haven't seen take place yet. I'm trying to trust him, but I'm wondering if I understood him correctly. I wonder if I really do stand justified in his favor, that is, as a person that he views with, with favor, as a person he says, that's my child there. I wonder, is that how the all-holy God is able to look at me? Can you be sure that this one who's called the Most High forgives and accepts you and will stand by you? These are the kinds of questions Abram was asking. He needed answers, and we do too. I have two main points to bring you today, and they're the two main divisions of this chapter. First of all, we're going to look in verses 1 through 6 at the content of justifying faith. And then in verses 7 to the end, for the confirmation of God's eternal covenant. First, the content of justifying faith. What is biblical faith? It's the main subject of Abram. It's the main reason he's featured. Hebrews 11 throws the spotlight on him and his great faith. What is it? What did he believe? Biblical faith is that which trusts specific promises made by the all-trustworthy God. As Christians, we are not called upon to simply have positive feelings towards God or faith in faith. I've spoken to you, I know, probably not for a long time, but in the past, about a song from the 1950s that as far as spiritual and theological content go, I absolutely despise this song. I believe that somewhere in the great unknown, there's a God who hears every prayer. Remember that song? Some of you aren't nearly old enough to remember it. What a stupid song. It doesn't have anything to do with biblical faith. We don't worship a God who's a someone in the great somewhere. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who revealed himself and gave us specific promises to believe in. Let me illustrate for a minute. What if you and I had some business to transact and you said to me, Pastor, let's have lunch. Be my guest. I always like it when I'm your guest, but I also pay sometimes. Be my guest tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday, May 17th. We'll go to the Eden Resort, one mile south of the church. We'll meet there at 1215 in the lobby. We'll have lunch. All right? You've allowed me to have a basis of, to establish trust in you. Uh, I assume you're a trustworthy person. You really do mean to have lunch and show up, and you've told me exactly where and when to come. You've given me something I can trust. 
and I can believe and act on the fact that we're going to have lunch. Well, Abram had some specific things from God. So far, he had the promise that there was going to be this vast land that his descendants would call their own. But there was this problem about descendants. He didn't have any. And there was a greater problem, a more acute problem, if you don't sense it as the beginning of chapter 15. The words after this, I think, are there for a specific reason. They're telling you that what you're about to hear is keyed on what has happened previously. What just happened at the end of chapter 14? Abram had attacked and scattered the forces of a very powerful marauding army. And now he was back home, and he dealt with Melchizedek and all these things, and he's there with his flocks and his herds, living in peace in the hills, and thinking about it. Hmm. I have made a powerful enemy. And surely that invader, Cater Leomer, wants to know who was it that set upon his troops in the middle of the night and scattered them. Surely this man with flashing swords and many camels and who knows, suicide bombers, is going to show up any day to deal with me. Here I am. God hasn't fulfilled his promises to me yet in this strange new land. I don't have a great nation. I don't own any of the land. And now I'm in mortal danger. You need to understand that all that is in after this because of what the Lord says to him. Don't be afraid, Abram. You see how God's word is perfectly suited? Don't be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. We just sang in the hymn here a bit ago, cover my defenseless head. That had to be what Abram was thinking, if not saying out loud, Lord, I need a shield. I need somebody to stand. And the Lord said, I'll stand with you. I'm with you. My shield might be invisible, but it is omnipotent, and it will not fail. And so I think Abram got the crux of of, of the issue that he could unburden himself to God because that's what he does in verse 2. He comes to the crux of the matter and says, all right, Lord, let me tell you what's really bothering me. Here I am, I'm supposed to be the father of a great nation, and I don't even have a son. And this man, Eleazar of Damascus, who we think might have been his business manager or perhaps, you know, perhaps the manager of his affairs, I've made him my heir, but Lord, I'm wondering, is he, is he the link to your plan? I, I don't think so. But when can I expect some visible results of this thing about being father of a great nation? How is this going to happen? There are many times when people ask the Lord questions in the Scripture and they were rebuked for it. Abram's not rebuked. Evidently, the Lord saw his question as a question of faith, not scorning doubt. And so comes a revelation in verse 4. You need to understand how dramatic this is. You know the story, of course. You know all about the fact that this man needs to have a son. But let me remind you, that hasn't been told to him yet. All it is is you're going to be the head of a great nation. How is that going to happen? Well, now the Lord is going to take what sounded difficult to believe and make it almost impossible to believe. This man is not going to be your heir. No Eliezer of Damascus, a son from your own body is going to be your heir. Oh, good. 
I was having trouble believing God up till now. And now he gives me the new one. I'm 85 years old, and I'm going to have a biological son. Did Abram scorn at that? Did he laugh at that? No, he did not. Because hearing that, more difficult than anything, promise from God, more specific promise from God, that is the content, I believe, of what verse 6 is saying he believed. Abraham believed the Lord that this impossible thing was going to happen. And so God credited it to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11 says Abram knew his own body as far as knowing how capable he was of fathering a son. Hebrews 11.11 says he knew that his body was as good as dead. And yet Hebrews 11.12 says he still considered him faithful who made the promise. In other words, his faith was not focused in the probability of the scientific circumstances. It was focused in the promise of the promiser the ability of the promiser to deliver what he said. He considered God to be able. Out of this wonderful verse 6, of course, the New Testament gospel builds upon the whole doctrine of justification by faith, a doctrine that many have called the hinge and pillar of Christianity. Justification, without going into a deep and detailed explanation, simply means being judged to be right or acceptable in the sight of God. Now, God is all holy, and we are all unholy. So how is God going to take that which is unholy and judge it to be acceptable? How is he going to embrace us in our sins and our filth? He's going to do it by crediting righteousness to us that we do not have in and of ourselves. In the New Testament books, as we would go into this, and we don't have time to trace all the texts, but in Romans 4, especially in Galatians 3, we read that Abram was believing God for the promise of his future seed. And Paul makes a very big point out of the fact that that seed was singular. Now, what was that? Well, you say, Isaac, of course, the son that he was going to have. But amazingly, the New Testament draws the conclusion and says, not just Isaac, that seed, singular, was Christ. And in that declaration, Paul, the apostle, links Genesis 15, 6 to the salvation of the New Testament and the entire Bible. He says, here's Abraham looking steadfastly to God, saying, God, I believe you that you're going to bring this seed from me. And that seed wasn't just a biological son. It was a Savior, Jesus Christ. So the content of justifying faith is trust in God who will fulfill his very specific promises and the ways in which he says he will fulfill them, which in this case points all the way to Jesus Christ. Now, by way of application for a moment, I think we need to be clear. You know, Abram gets exalted so much. The New Testament, Hebrews 11, puts a spotlight on him, and you think, wow, this guy was, he was so astronomically high in his faith. I can't have faith like Abram. Well, that's one of the reasons we're studying this man, because you need to see Abram in his wonderful, exemplary ways of faith, 
But if you want to just cast your eyes ahead to chapter 16, where Lord willing will look next Sunday, you're going to see this guy's still going to fall downstairs pretty badly in his faith. In other words, his fears and his questions and his blunders and his mistakes relating to faith did not disappear just because he was justified and credited for righteousness. Isn't that an important lesson for us to hear? I meet so many people who ought to be far along in their maturity of Christian faith and still are struggling with the whole issue of assurance. And they say, Pastor, oh, I, yes, I believe in Christ, but you know, there are voices that tell me that some days I not, must not be a Christian at all. I make so many stupid mistakes. I don't trust God. I sin in grievous ways. The voices whisper to me, you wouldn't be a Christian and do that. Well, the one thing I want to say about Abram that I think a way of expressing his faith that believed God here is that the voice of God telling him that the impossible would happen became for him from that time onward the loudest voice he heard inside his head. Here's what I mean. He still heard the other voices. Oh, did you ever blow it? Oh, man, a real believer wouldn't do that. How could God ever forgive me? He heard those voices. He heard them whisper. He heard them almost like a demonic chorus singing a song to him every day. But at the end of the day, there was a voice that he heard that was louder. And that was the voice of his father saying, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. My son, you have trusted me, and I have credited it to you as righteousness. Can you say that? You see, it's not a question of saying, my faith never falters. My faith never has a doubt. My faith has doubts. If yours never does, congratulations. There are moments in the night when things whisper to me and accuse me. But that's not the loudest voice I hear. The loudest voice is the voice of my Father saying, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I have made the promise, and I will fulfill it. Trust me. Watch my promises come true all the way to Jesus Christ. All right, enough about the content of his faith. But in the second place, and quickly, I have to deal with with a very important section in the second part of this chapter. Hold on with me here. Genesis 15, 9 to 17 represents something amazing. As Abram still asks another question, Lord, how can I know? I, I, I just, I need something more. And so the Lord gave him this vision, this strange, almost bizarre, to you, nonsensical It might even look like a nightmare. It might look like some kind of a cult ritual, a bloody, bizarre enactment. You say, what could be the value of this? Well, I'm telling you, it's actually rather easy to explain and interpret it to you. Abram followed God's prompting to cut the bodies of a calf, a goat, and a ram with his knife. And what he was about to do was present in the second place confirmation of his eternal covenant. Abram, according to God's urging, laid the halves of these animals on the ground with a space in between. And we would say, what is he doing? What a strange thing. But you know, people in an ancient day would have read this and it wasn't strange to them one bit. They knew what he was doing. 
He was practicing a common ritual of the, of the ancient day for confirming a contract or a covenant. If you're going to give your sacred word and seal it with another party, you did it by shedding blood. And the practice became to take the carcass of an animal, cut it in two, lay it on the ground, and the two parties would walk in between the separated bloody carcass of this animal. You say, oh, I don't even want to think about it. Well, no one's asking you to do it. You know, you get to solve a contract by going to a lawyer and filing papers at the courthouse, and it's a lot cleaner. This is the way they did it. And it was commonly understood. People were saying in so many words, may I be treated like that dead animal on either side of me if I break the terms of our agreement. I stake myself, I stake my sacred honor to what we have agreed to. May heaven strike me dead like this ruined animal if I break my contract. This was commonly understood in the ancient world. Now, contracts usually have two parties. Most of the time they do. I want you to see something, and it's very, very important about this dream, this vision that comes to Abram after he, putting the animals down was a real act. He didn't dream that, but then he went into a sleep. Verse 12 says, the Lord made some prophecies to him, and then the vision came that completed this thing. I want you to notice, Abram himself, in the dream, nor in fact, walked between the pieces of the carcass. Now, that's what he would be doing if this was a two-way contract. It doesn't say he did that. In fact, as he fell into this sleep and had this vision, he saw something passing between the pieces of the animal, a torch and a smoking fire pot. You scratch your head and say, what in the world? But it, again, is not that hard to understand. Because the flame in its light and the smoke in its mystery are clear symbols in the Old Testament of the presence of God. They're the same symbols God used as he went with Israel in their journey. Remember the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day? Remember Mount Sinai when they came there? The, the smoke and the flame was, was the mystery and the grandeur and the awe that God was here. God is present. Draw back. That's what it symbolized here as well. And therefore, this stunning vision in Genesis 15 was telling Abram this, well understood by commentators who compare it to the Old Testament. It was saying God alone passed through the pieces of the animal and secured the terms of the covenant. God alone himself said, I accept the curse if this covenant that I have to make you my people and bless you would ever be broken, I accept its curse. May I be like this animal, bloody, dead, on the ground. You see, that's what Hebrews 6 interpreted. It says there, when God made his promise to Abram, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Because when God says he will do a thing, he makes covenants and contracts that are eternal and unconditional and depend on him and no other. Now, just as a quick sidebar, there's something wonderful here that I'll just speak of for a minute. In verses 13 to 16, predictions come. 
in this dream as Abram slept, the Lord gave him predictions that, yes, Abram, your, your uh, nation is going to occupy this land, but it's not going to happen for 400 years. That's a way of saying, don't be impatient. I've got a schedule, too. And you'll be dead when it happens. Maybe he didn't like hearing that, but at least it, it took a load off his mind about the schedule. And then the Lord says, look, I want you to know that I'm a very patient God. Before they get this land, your descendants are going to become slaves, and then the land that enslaved them is going to be harmed by them, and they're going to plunder that nation and escape from them. And there's a little thing I just want to to comment on at the end of verse 16 that I think is very wonderful for what it reveals about God, and most of you wouldn't even notice it there. When the Lord says, not for 400 years will this happen, or in the fourth generation, when the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. What does that mean? The Amorites here are the dominant people that are occupying the land of Canaan. The Lord was saying, look, I'm working out a patient plan. And here's what's going to happen. Your people are going to come back to this land. They're going to occupy it. There's going to be a man named Joshua He didn't reveal the name of Joshua, but this is what we know the Lord was doing. And I'm going to tell Joshua, go into that land and wipe out the inhabitants, man, woman, and child. Now, isn't it true that if anybody wants to strike against the Bible, here it is. Here's the kingpin of all the arguments against the God of the Bible. He told people to go in, his Israelites, to go in and kill everybody. What kind of a God is that? Well, I'll tell you what kind of a God it is. It's a God who planned to offer to the Amorites through the preaching of people like Melchizedek and other true believers in their midst who could have made known to them the true God and they could have come and worshipped him. But instead, for 400 years, they offered their children in sacrifices, they worshipped idols, and they indulged in every kind of sexual immorality possible. And the Lord said, I'll give them 400 years. And then my mercy will run out and they will not deserve my compassion any longer. Don't tell me God was cruel to the Amorites. They got 400 years, and notice was presented in the land. There were witnesses to the true God there. God never fails to perform on a promise. If it might take him four centuries or 4,000 years to bring something about, he will bring about what he promises. Now, let me wrap it up this way. What are you to remember about this bizarre vision in the night, in the deep darkness that Abram saw? You might say, this is the strangest thing I ever heard of, a smoking fire pot and a torch and cut apart animals. Could God possibly make any more terrible, awful demonstration than he did here and when he said, I would rather be torn apart myself than break my covenant? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, there was a more terrible moment that needs to be kept in mind along with this vision. In fact, it was an even darker moment. And it wasn't a vision. It was real. It was the moment when the living God had become a human being in the person of his son, Jesus, who went to Calvary. And there in the unnatural darkness of midday. Jesus, the divine Son, came under the covenant curse because mankind had broken 
the covenant and someone had to pay. And God who said so long ago, may I be the one torn apart, put His Son on a cross to be ravaged and torn apart by the hostility and hatred of mankind. On Jesus Christ came the covenant curse. Cursed is everyone. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We broke the covenant. Christ took the penalty. The Father told Abraham way back there, that's the way I intend to do it. And he did. Surely Genesis 15, 6 is an epic word. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that God could do this thing that appeared biologically impossible. He believed that God in his timing over four centuries would do it. He trusted that God. He went to his grave trusting that God, still seeing the promise not completely fulfilled, even though the son Isaac had come. And folks, it isn't that Abram was so praiseworthy that he had 100% stainless faith. He had flawed faith. We're going to find that out in the next chapter, how flawed it was. But he believed God. The loudest voice in his head was the voice of God saying, I fulfill promises. And he believed that God either must carry out his covenant of redemption unilaterally and unconditionally, accomplishing it by his grace in Jesus, or we're lost because we won't do it. We aren't even full partners in that covenant. And yet we broke it. Only when Abram's faith in yours is lodged in the right person, in the powerful, compassionate, merciful God who allowed his son to be torn in two for a covenant curse, can you be justified to have eternal life? But when your trust is there, when you know that the faith that God is asking of you today is a trust and a reliance that looks all the way to Jesus Christ and says, there, there is the hinge of the door of eternal life. Jesus is the hinge. Then what Paul said in Galatians 3.29 can be your rejoicing. If you are Christ's, you are Abram's offspring. You are that people that he was promised that'll be as plentiful as the star. You folks are Abram's offspring. And Paul said, therefore, you are the heirs according to God's promise. God always keeps his promise, even at the cost of his son. Our Father, there are great things here. You told us long ago what you were doing what you would do, how you would do it, the price you would pay. We need the same faith as Abram. Not perfect faith. God-centered faith. Christ-centered faith. Faith that holds on to him. Faith that would be the loudest voice in our head, no matter what any doubt or any naysayer whispers to us. Fix our faith on Jesus for his glory. Amen.